Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen, on the Fleet Matthews Radio Show. Thank you for listening, tuning in wherever you are around the world. She's back with us, Dr. Jacqueline Battalora, uh, the author of Birth of a White Nation, The Invention of White People and Its Relevance Today. Um, Dr. Battalora is an anti-racist writer, attorney, and professor of sociology and criminal justice at St. Xavier University in Chicago, as well as a former Chicago police officer. So don't mess with her because she's badass. Welcome back, Doc. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having me, Philippe. <laughs> <laughs> So in this conversation, we're going to talk about, and we, we have really unpacked a lot. I mean, we did Baker's Rebellion. We talked about anti-mexication. We talked about the, birth, the, the actual birth of white people, the invention of white people. This time, we're going to talk about something interesting, and that is the invention of race. Because one would think, and I, my, in my naivete, thought that, well, between that 1664 and 1681 that we talk about on our, 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 our conversations, within our conversations of, of how these laws came to be, we, there would be the assumption that there would be the classification of race. But when we talk about how that has become, how, how, how does that become institutionalized in a society, uh, you say, no, that took some time to do. And, and uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today is the invention of race. Right. Yeah, so the, it, I know that it's a, it, it can be for us um, in this 21st century in the United States, it seems as though this concept, this way of thinking about humanity as races um, that that has always been the case, but it, it simply hasn't. Mm. The, the, the label race, the way of thinking about human groups as, as reflecting races, um, didn't emerge until 100 years after the invention of white people, mm. which of course first appeared in 1681. Wow. <clears throat> Excuse me. A hundred years. Yeah, so... Well, so we know from the invention of white people that that um, people were thought of as um, being in different groups, that that way of thinking began to take hold with the invention of white people. Um, and people before the invention of white people um, were rhetorically referenced in these sort of group labels. Negro was the first um, terminology for persons of African descent and Indians. Um, so linguistically, groupings were um, reflected, but people were not understood as different um, in in the way of thinking that the concept of race then um, morphed into. So let's um, let's dive into when this way of thinking about people called races um, came about. Mm-hmm. Um, as I was mentioning to you in, in the green room, as we say, um, mm-hmm. even on the radio, um, 
at, at really the very moment when the American Revolution was taking place was also a moment when um, I hesitate to call them scientists, but they were they tended to be physicians and um, naturalists. I think is perhaps the best label for them. But um, Carlos Linnaeus um, mm-hmm. was one of the first, and he he helped to um, develop a system of for organizing. Um, living natural um, our natural world class order genus species um, and so he was one of the first to, to start this classification um, of nature and it wasn't until the latter part of his life that he began to apply this to humans and so all of these naturalists um, I'm trying to um, I'm trying to remember the name of the German um, Blumenbach. Blumenbach starts with a B. Blumenbach. Blumenbach. I, my apologies. I should know Blumenbach. the name. Yeah, Blumenbach. Thank you. Yes. Um, he he was uh, became quite well known um, as a naturalist as well, and um, so these these naturalists were busy categorizing, and then they began to apply it um, to humans. And it's important to note that all of these. Um, naturalists were themselves within this group called white people um and and they simply drew you know we think of science today as being based upon observable um uh you know heavily controlled experimentation and nothing that they called science to justify viewing humanity as races would hold up as science today so we should be very clear Um, But what they did was they took um, ideas about different groups of people, not very rarely was it from direct observation, which is an initial problem. Mostly they tended to draw upon the the logs of um, explorers, so other white people who were exploring um, the world um, through ship travel. Mm -hmm. And so they were relying on these journals as a source of information about um, other people. And of course, you know, it's not surprising, I don't think, that their ordering of humanity reflected sort of the social structure of their moment as Europeans. So white mm. people at the top, in other words. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so they assigned qualities to um, these groups of people. And of course, the most Admirable qualities were attached to white people who looked like them and less desirable ones to to various non-white groups. And Blumenbach's categorization, um, because he used um, Caucasian as this label for white, and and this, I think, kind of helps us put into... um, put into perspective this whole entire body of so-called science that has been used to justify humans as um, racial groups. And that is this, that his, his use of the label Caucasian mm-hmm. came out as um, the reason he used it and, and then put white people in it was that his, the most beautiful skull in his collection came from a woman um, in the Caucasian uh, region. 
So wow. it's because it was the prettiest skull. Exactly. That's why I love that little piece because I, it really helps put in perspective okay. these claims to science. Okay. So so we, we get it, right? So we get that yeah. you have these people, yeah. this pseudoscience that's that's um emerging. And don't forget, we are now in the Enlightenment. So so the whole paradigm in Western civilization is shifting away from God as the authority now to science as that which justifies truth, that which mm-hmm. speaks truth and tells truth. Okay, so in the mix of this, we have the emergence of an entirely new country called the United States of America. And with the Enlightenment, we had, um, we had two impulses that were very significant. One was this um, natural, what they would call natural law. Mm-hmm. And and we see lots of natural law clay, um, clauses in our um, founding documents. Things like all men are created equal, claims of liberty for all. Mm-hmm. So so that's natural rights and and natural law kind of language that was part of the philosophies um, that emerged in the Enlightenment. So that's one impulse. Um, the other impulse. Um, was this this tendency to um, to authorize or legitimize um, truth claims through science, through direct observation, um, although we know that was missing from the pseudoscience I just referenced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so here's what we see in founding um, U.S. documents. We see these two two contrary things that are at play in the U.S. Constitution. All men are created equal and other natural law kind of claims and uh, an affirmation of slavery. How mm. the heck did smart people, mm-hmm. um, how, how, did, how were they okay? <laughs> the question becomes, like, how, how can that mm. be? Like what? Here, and so here's here the cognitive dissonance that we talked about. I was again. just going to say, and, and here we're back to cognitive dissonance. Yeah. So, it, if I, I had um, over the summer, I was reading the um, Congressional Congress to the extent I could find records of exchanges there about those who were um, supporting slavery and those opposed to slavery, um, and and reading what they had to say, and nowhere could I find a reference to race. And, and actually, that was consistent with what I expected. Um, and the one place I found use of, of the language race um, was by Thomas Jefferson in his, um, uh, what was it, letters, or, or um, I'm trying to remember the title of the book about um, the state of Virginia, mm-hmm. on the state of Virginia, I think is the the text and, and in there um, I see one of the first references to race. And in fact, in 1790, the brand new country, like the first Congress met in, in 1789 and 90. Um, and in, I believe it was 1790, they required that a, a census be taken. So they know these, their, their people um, who fell within the boundaries of this new Republic. Um, and this census, the census has no reference to race. Mm, wow. So again, 
we see that this the the very even just the language of race um, was just emerging. Um, and again, one of the the primary um, carriers of the idea of race was in fact Thomas Jefferson. You and I did a show together with Michael Pillman on race technology. And yeah. uh, we were talking about uh, Thomas Bielosi and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the four uh, aspects of race technology is, is uh, uh, you know, classifying, stating, mixing, and spacing. And uh, Thomas Jefferson was used as the example of stating. And so I think what you're talking about in terms of his records uh, was when he started, he, he started talking about race and started stating, uh, which was the beginning of, if you will, this, this, well, this now well-oiled machine called race, uh, racism or scientific racism or institutional Absolutely. Racism. Absolutely. And so, be, so, so I'm, I'm trying to pull all these pieces together, and I know they're not readily clear how they fit together. So let me keep, let me keep building, and then hopefully we can You're doing great on, on, our, on this part, so go ahead. <laughs> okay. Well, good. So we have, we have this natural law claims all people are created equal at the same time that these same documents protect slavery, right? Because the Constitution didn't allow for the abolishment of slavery until a, a, a later um, time. So it wasn't even a possibility. Um, so how, how do you resolve these? Well, if through cognitive dissidence, um, you have made this group of people who, by the way, you um, in Thomas Jefferson's instance, you have hundreds of that you have rendered slaves, um, if you have made them something less than human, mm -hmm. then, you know, maybe they don't quite, it, that claim of being created equal doesn't really apply to them. Mm -hmm. And so don't forget that in the Enlightenment period, the way that truth claims get to hold a status as truth is through science. And so conveniently, um, Linnaeus, Blumenbach, and, and Jefferson himself, who, who was into classification, was a, one of these um, sort of on-the-side scientists as well, mm -hmm. um, pr produced the science, which today we would call pseudoscience, um, that worked to give that authority. Um, and, and justified this, this claim or, or the proposal that persons of African descent are in fact lesser than Caucasians. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so all of this came together to, um, and, and of course, I, I, I can't even say the words, it just isn't right, <laughs> right? But for some, for them, it worked to, to, to appease this conflict between mm -hmm. the natural law claims and the endorsement of the enslavement of persons of African descent. So there was this, it, it, you know, there was this constant fight between morality and humanity um, and economics uh, because the slaves represented that was their economics. That was how the country made money. Uh, and but you know what's crazy to me is that I mean, obviously, even well, the founders... We have, first, we have to first deal with 
and this is just my opinion, we just had to first deal with the psychopathy. It was just a collective psychopathy that went viral because you have to be out of your mind uh, to do something like that and to institute yep. it and to follow it and to create uh, an entire uh, and, and, to, and to give it to the entire population. Uh, uh, healthy, mentally healthy human beings don't do that. So, That's so, right. th- th- you know, so this is why we're having this conversation and, and, and why uh, I love the work that you have done over and above, uh, uh, you know, Theodore Allen and, and, and uh, Edgar Morgan, because you have brought with your work the humanity and morality in the research where that is missing uh, in some of the earlier works, even though you have researched that, and it's an integral part of our history and our, and our working through this, but you've brought the humanity back. You've brought the morality back and the sanity uh, back into the conversation and, ha- and, and, and really have, have made that dichotomous. It's like, okay, this is not nor- these are not normal people, and we're living right now uh, uh, intergenerational disease. White people are, are, are in a sense, just as much victimized by this as we are, more so than us in terms of the, the actual physical outcome, but the mental outcome for you, for white people, Absolutely. is you're constantly battling your morality. That's exactly right. I call it, I, I like to refer to it as um, that white, whiteness, white institutionalized white superiority has, has truly damaged, significantly damaged our humanity. Mm-hmm. Our, capacity, um, our capacity to be in the shoes of another, of color. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, let's be clear. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it's it's real, yeah. So so let's go back. So I didn't want to interrupt you. I had to intercede in that and, and, and say that you know we, we have to look at this the, the beginning of this and say these people were out of their freaking minds and the classification, the medical classification of of of, uh, of a sociopath or, or a psychopath uh, can be readily <laughs> attributed. Uh, to the people uh, who created these laws, instituted these laws, and made these laws the, the lay of the land, to continue to look for reasons to justify the enslavement and the dehumanization of a people and to create a third class, it's absolutely diabolical. And I think what, yes, what people are afraid to admit is when we look at some of the maybe some of the or maybe all of the uh, actions and language uh, of the 45th, we get to see that psychopathy blatantly uh, uh, thrown in our faces one tweet at a time. Mm. Yes. And the mic drops. And <laughs> yes, I know. what. <laughs> That's and the room goes silent, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, yeah, well, you got to sit with that one. Yeah, I, I had flashes of different tweets going in front of my eyes, so it was taking a little bit to uh, absorb it all. Uh, yeah, but, I mean, it's a conversation. It's a hard 
you know, you and I, we have hard conversations. This is what the show is dedicated to. And it's not emotional. It's just, this is really the science of it. And, uh, well, uh, and you, you think about this concept of race and how important it has been, right? Because we already had these groups that were seen as, as having, uh, as different groups, right? So it doesn't mm-hmm. seem entirely crazy to shift over to this, this thing called race. But what, what that shift did was it rooted it in um, what they called science, but we would today call pseudoscience. And, and the result is that for generations, people uh, born into these so-called racial categories believe it's biological. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, mm-hmm. it, it, has worked, it has worked to perpetuate that lie. And it does it today. I mean, you can't find a form without this category, you know, without clicking off a category mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as if it's, it's real in the sense of biological real. And, and let me, let me make something clear. Having lower or higher levels of melanin in one's skin is um, a reflection of a biological reality. Mm-hmm, but here's what mm-hmm. people miss. It, if racial groups were biologically real, we would find definitive ranges of melanin. We'd find sharp markers that divide and separate groups mm-hmm. in these categories. And it simply doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Even, even if we use melanin as, as one of the, the markers, there are ranges of melanin within each of the different groups that overlap with the mm-hmm. other groups. Mm-hmm. So there is no... Um, there's no line of demarcation. No genetic, no g- genetic support for mm-hmm. these things called race. They are just like um, the category white. They are um, an assertion of power and control and subjugation um, and empowerment. Now, what I want to do right now is I really, if you, if 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 I could, uh, and if you can, I really want to get these dates uh, because this is very important. You know. We know from 1664 to 1681, the anti-miscegenation laws came into play and became substantiated in 1681. Kind of like it was, it started in 1664, but it really became substantiated in 1681. And that was when there was, and it was a cluster of these laws, but three of the most powerful, as, as, as you have trained me very well, I must say, doctor, uh, <laughs> and that I repeat on, on, on my show and other guests uh, on my show are learning this as well, that uh, one, a person of African descent could not uh, vote uh, because prior to that they could. Uh, they, they could run for office. Uh, they could no longer run for office. Um, even though there was no uh, mention in the in, 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 in the archives that they they did, but if they wanted to, they could have, but there was no nothing to stop them from doing so. Uh, they could not own gunpowder or guns, uh, which was another huge significant one, especially back huge. in that time, when uh, that was how you protected your life, your family, and uh, in some cases made your living because you had to, you know, this country was already taken, uh, and then you had to uh, work and, and, and be protected by uh, everybody was trying to kill you. Thirdly, though, however, or fourthly or whatever, was the class the classification of white was created at that time, 
and the 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 uh, uh, accompanying law said that a person of African descent could not sue this new designation of white. That couldn't testify against couldn't the white testify person. against them. Mm-hmm. So you know. And we've had Which made very clear the, the the legal system's position in relation to white people versus people of color, and we continue right. to see manifestations of it to this day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, when you think of that, you know that year, that time, that moment when that was first um, put in, into the public uh, place, and how that was uh, propagated. Yeah. It's the beginning, but it took a hundred years to uh, for it to, if you will, to mature, to manifest as an actual state of culture, uh, an actual manifestation of of, of collective <laughs> psychopathy, uh, and and it's very diabolical in a sense because you're you're raising people, you know, children born are now you know, being socialized. The question is, you know, which came first, chicken or the egg, right? So um, we have this conversation. Are there are all white people bad? Can the people who harmed us the most do us the most, uh, any good? Um, and so, you know, we, we see a child born innocently. Uh, you know, how, how do they come up and become, uh, you know, racially aggressive uh, through mm-hmm. socialization? But the problem is, is that, you know, these, these SOBs back in, uh, who took the country, you know, back in the 1400s, this is, this is what we're dealing with. And you're born into, it's like the matrix. It's like you're born into this lie uh, called America. And if you're lucky, you'll grow up and you will become a Battalora or, or a D'Angelo or a Wise or, a, uh, or an Elliot. And you'll be white and you'll recognize something here ain't right uh, with this thing called white. And depending upon what time and where you and place and your area of study, you will say, you know, where did this come from? But most of them don't know where this comes from, which is why your work is radically powerful and necessary and needed because you give the actual historical dates and, and almost times, if you will, when, <laughs> when this started and say, oh, because now we're kind of trying to, you know, explain an effect with an effect and we never get to the cause you're able to get to that cause. Here's what caused it. But now we know from 1681 on, this is how, how this began to develop into this thing called race technology and the emergence uh, of, of, of race 100 years later. Yeah. Right. Well, I think, I think actually sort of the, the shift from different groups um, imbued with different assumptions about their value, um, Mm -hmm. which began to be the case starting with the invention of white people. Um, And I think the shift of that into race, it race just became the, the, the moment, the enlightenment moment 
uh, presented new requirements. And so it offered a new scheme for how to justify that setup. And we've had millions more. I mean, I, as you were speaking, I thought of Michelle Alexander's work. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that she cautions, and I think it's so important, is the flexibility of white supremacy to reshape itself in, in the new moments, the new pressures of, of new ways of thinking, of new language, um, but, but nonetheless to persist and to find new ways to um, dehumanize non-white people and mm -hmm. confer unearned advantage on white people, the, its ability to do that and to morph and um, it, it, in, into oh, the constraints like, and the possibilities like, of a, are, are you of a like historic moment are incredible. Are you Just saying incredible. like presidential pardon? Is, are you saying like- Well, I, I'm saying- You're not talking about that, are you? But, I let left that then then I am talking about sort of the the broad culture and our and because we all play a role in it, you know, in the like think about it in yours and my lifetime, Felipe. We have seen this mass incarceration. It has been it has been a oh. um oh. It, it has been part of our life. I have right? seen my friends and family that yeah. And so, and so it's that it, yeah. it's white supremacy that that molds to a new moment in a new way, right? And and it's you know what the hell? I mean, why did it take the incarceration of this many people? Why did it take Michelle right. Alexander's right. writings for us to for so many in our nation well, to say, oh my God, look what we've done argument. again? Here's an argument. Here's an argument, and that is. You know, I've had other scientists on, such as Dr. Edwin Nichols, 50-year veteran in philosophy and created the philosophical aspects of cultural difference. And he uh, uh, is an axiologist, and, and axiologists who study human values and how the environment shapes our DNA and, and, and modifies mm -hmm. us genetically. Um, mm -hmm. And, and uh, there's this new science called epigenetics, which is basically genetic memory. And... So there is uh, uh, an, uh, an aspect to this, whether it was back then known or not in terms of just the biology of people, but those uh, our, our ancestors born into this, both black and white, uh, in, ter in terms of this new designation in the category, uh, category, um, the environment of of institutional white supremacy has a biological genetic effect. It alters our, our DNA. And so this is why a lot of uh, um, uh, African-Americans will never trust uh, the new designation of white people and, and vice versa if white people won't trust black people because, because of being born into what you're socialized in. And I had Dr. Luann Brizendine on the show, who is an incredible uh, genius of mine in, in uh, uh, hormonal, uh, hormonal uh, uh, neurobiology. And she hmm. wrote two best-selling books, The Female Brain and The Male Brain. She was on Oprah, and, and The Female Brain now is, is, is going to be made into a movie. And I asked her the question, this was during the time when the 45th was running for election, and I asked her... Uh, 
can uh, hate be hardwired in the brain? And she said unequivocally, yes. And I, that floored me because now yeah. that supported the axiology of Dr. Edwin Nichols and uh, in, in shaping the human value system and the nervous system and how it responds to the environment and stimulus in the environment. But then now she's saying at the brain level, this can be hardwired. So when we look at KKK and all of the uh, uh, hate groups and organizations in the country, we can look at it from a genetic perspective. And I remember saying to you, uh, when you, you and I have the conversation on, on, on my live show, that uh, the election of the 45th, I said that it was a genetic response. And I said it because I just felt that there was something more than meets the eye for the fact that CNN and all of these other news stations could not predict uh, and know where these people came from. Uh, I had a top, one of the top demographers in the country, uh, Kenneth Ronbach. I had him on my radio show. And his work is, you know, over the last 30 years, he just counts people. And he has all of these predictions. And he says, Philippe, all of the demographers that I have worked with, we, could not, we, didn't, we missed this one. We could not predict it. I said, really? Mm-hmm. They got everything mm-hmm. else right, but they couldn't even right. the top scientists. And so when... Uh, um, Dr. Brevin and I said that, yeah, you know, you know, can I asked her the question, can someone, you, can you ask someone and say, hey, are you a racist? And they can look at you and say, no, I am not. And not even uh, if they were under a, um, uh, what do you call that thing, a lie detector. It wouldn't register because it's right. so cellular. It's who they are at the genetic level. They don't know. So what I'm saying and what I'm getting at, to even further substantiate the work that you've done uh, is that this is such a well-oiled machine that when you are born into this system, that it starts to, uh, there, there is an also called the in epigenetics, it, it, you and me are living, our parents, our, you know, our, our, our parents our three generations from uh, three generations ago. That's mm. how deep genetically it, it, it manifests itself. And what you're doing right now will affect three generations from now. It's fascinating. So this is Absolutely a very well-oiled machine. And so, yeah. when, when, so this is why your work is so radically important to me, uh, because we need that uh, anomaly. We need that shift in the DNA. We need... <laughs> that that thing in the matrix that break we need the neo right you are your work is the neo in the matrix it has to be broken and so in order to change that dna we have to create an axiological epigenetic movement with this yes. work of education and all it takes is education now here's the interesting thing uh dr battle dr edward nichols says it will only take one generation to change it Five hundred years will only take one generation. If we, if we, now this new generation of Generation Y that's coming out is going to be eighty-six million of them, uh, the mm-hmm. largest in history, bigger than the baby boomers. They're the ones that that, that can absolutely unequivocally change all of this uh, in one generation. So the work that you're doing is, I, I can't. When I say your work is so necessary, it's just not 
um, blowing smoke up your 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 your, your whatever. It's, it's it's really serious. <laughs> I know from other studies, other talks, other experts what can be done and how imperative this work is. Um, so it took, and just think about this, it took 100 years from 1681 for this, this machine to really kind of manifest for people being born into it. And we, we had this conversation where you said, well, who the hell is going to uh, uh, go for these classifications? I mean, I wake up tomorrow morning, and all of a sudden I'm white, and you're, and you're a Negro, and wh- who, who's going to, in, in a society where everybody was, in a sense, equal, who's going to go for that? How do you even enforce that and make that a right. reality? And, you, you, you know, you walked us through that. So when was... When was the first meeting of Congress? Um, 1789. 1789. So they met in, in 1789 and 1790 was the first. And, Congress. and in that meeting, there was no mention of race. Oh, the Continental Congress. No, that was that preceded um, the formation of the nation. And um, I can't remember the date off the top of my head. I don't want to give an, an inaccurate one. Okay. And and then the Constitution, this was before, obviously, 1681 was before the Constitution. When was the Constitution written? Right. I know. I'm sorry. I'm just... That's all right. I just, I don't want to, on the show, I don't want to give it. So, so, so what I'm saying is, is that most of our history is taught uh, that not even the first meeting of Congress, it usually starts with just the Constitution. And you have to understand that this thing called race, this invention of race, this invention of white people, uh, took a hundred years prior to that to fester, to manifest. And it just didn't, it just didn't, it just didn't naturally appear. It was created, it was massaged, it was perfected. And that's what we really need to understand where we exactly. are. Exactly. Darwinism, this was, a, this was perfected over time. Um, and all from psychopathic uh, people who wanted to protect their 1% position. That's right. So you and I are going to be doing a show, a live show, with Michael Kilman, because uh, you guys together are just absolutely insane. Uh, the audience just loves your, your, your brains and your mind. Uh, and we're going to talk about social Darwinism, and, and we're going to be talking deeper into Linnaeus and Blumenbach uh, and how, you know, race uh, emerged uh, after these anti-methodization laws of 1681 uh, took uh, uh, took place. Uh, give us some words of wisdom and closing. Well, I, I guess I, I would like to just um, shout out a thank you for sharing that piece of information that I was unaware of until you spoke about it, that in one generation, we really can change this. Mm-hmm. Because 
as I talk about this history and how how deep it is and insidious it is, um, uh, the workings of white supremacy that is, um, I, I often feel overwhelmed and I won and and I have definitely wondered, my God, how long is it going to take us? Um, mm-hmm. And it feels really empowering and really hopeful um, that that's the case. But but to realize that we have a lot of work to do. Yes, absolutely. I'll send you the uh, interview. Uh, with my first interview with Dr. Edward Nichols uh, that, that we did on that. And uh, as, as we were closing out, I, that's what he shared with us um, in terms of genetic memory and epigenetics. And I said, oh, my God, really, one generation. So then I started counting and yeah, started getting all the demographers together and, and started looking at you know, what are the numbers. <laughs> you know, what, what right. generation could do this? Because I know this is not going to be my, my butt because I'm getting ready. You know, I'm in my 50s. I'm, you know, so. I, I, you know, I, I've got less in, less in front than, than behind, so it's going to be the next generation. So I'm like, okay, kids, let's go. Here's what we got to do. Here's your assignment right. uh, of humanity. Here's your, and, and, that's really, <laughs> and that's really what we're talking about, your, your assignment of humanity. You come here, and it's not just to go to school and get a job and, you know, uh, that's you right. know uh, have a family and all that, and that's phenomenal. And, yes, you want to do those things if that's what you want to do. But you're, you, there's an assignment to your humanity, uh, of humanity, and this is going to be generation-wide assignment uh, of humanity. Yes. And um, truly, the greatest generation. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So I appreciate you, Doctor uh, Battalore, for being with me as always. Um, and we've got a lot more conversations to have. There's some things that you are working on that you're, we're going to be releasing later in the year. Um, and um, one is a, a chapter in your book that is actually going to be the genesis of, I think, uh, a new movement in America, and that is called Whiteness Competency. And uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, having that conversation with you and also being a part of the process. Thank you. Me too. I look forward to it. All right, everybody. You know what to do. Uh, share this comments uh, below and on Facebook, uh, and, we'll, and we'll hear from you next time uh, on the Philippe Matthews Radio Show. Take care, everybody. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.